Hi, y'all. We are back for another podcast episode. And today we're going to break down this concept of the difference between tantrums and meltdowns. I think this is something that often can be confused in terminology and also then knowing in your child, is this a developmentally appropriate behavior? We often see tantrums in toddlers all the time, or is this something that needs some additional support? So I have with me here today, Galay, and she she is a developmental speech therapist. She is also a parent coach and co-founder of Orchid Kids. So we're going to talk a little bit about all her roles and how she supports families as well on the episode today. Real quick, just a brief interruption, because I want you to know you don't have to navigate this journey alone. If you're in a place where you have concerns about your child's development, you've been on the search for a therapist that provides evidence-informed neurodivergent affirming care, or you're needing more support as a parent, the whole family approach may be a good fit for you. Autism doesn't just impact your child's life, so you deserve care that works for your child and your whole family. Head to the link in the show notes to schedule a complimentary call where we can chat about your unique circumstances. We can help you decide if Dr. Tay concierge clinical care would be a good fit for your family. And if not, we will provide you resources for your next best steps. Gabrielle, welcome to the podcast. So excited to have you here. Thank you, Taylor. I am excited to talk all things child development and um, excited to be here. Thanks for having yeah, me. Yeah, of course. Give us a little background. How did you get into the field and start doing what you're doing now? Oh my God. So I was working in an office as a 20 something and I was like, this can't be it. Poked around a little bit, found out I liked working with children, which I knew, but didn't really understand how that could work. Mm. And then in short order, had observed a speech therapist and I was like, oh, that's my thing. And so very quickly specialized in pediatrics and then opened my private practice in 09. So I have a small private practice in the Washington DC area called Speech Kids. We serve kids and families all over the DMV. So DC, Maryland, and Virginia. And then in 20, my co-founder, Jen Dreyer, and I had been introduced through a mutual friend and we were sitting down and we're like, there's like therapy for families who are struggling and there's regular parenting classes, mm -hmm. but there's nothing for families who are raising orchid kids. And we can get into what that means, but, yeah. and I had just read the book by Thomas Boyce, the orchid and the dandelion. And I was like, you know what? Having developmental disability or a developmental delay is an adverse childhood experience. And this is important. And so the strategies, what parents don't often know is the strategies that work with typically developing kids do not translate sometimes. Mm -hmm. A lot to, of times. A lot of times. Thank you. I don't want to overstate it, but I also don't want to understate it because there are actually some typical parenting tips and tricks that are damaging to orchids and to kids with developmental issues. And so Jen and I created a class called Raising Orchid Kids, where we take parents through an eight-week curriculum, but you also get to meet other parents who are struggling with meltdowns, which we're going to get into, yeah. and difficult behaviors and their own feelings about those behaviors. And so we've created this little community over the past few years. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think with the parenting advice, one thing that's really interesting to think about is the rise of social media. There is so much parenting advice nowadays. And I love social media. I've made so many connections. I hear from parents all the time. It's nice to be able to access that information. 
And one, it can be information overload. But two, I think for parents that are raising what I would refer to as like neurodivergent children or autistic children in particular with this podcast is maybe they go and consume an account that's talking about neurotypical kids and then they end up so much more frustrated in the process. Or I don't know if you experience this, but I find a lot of self-blame then of they said it works. Why is it not working? What am I doing? wrong? Am I a bad parent and going down that, that spiral? And it's one, probably not the most ideal strategy for your kid, but two, even I think no one strategy is great for every kid. And so some of that marketing, I think also does a disservice as well. I think anything that is going to take you away from what feels aligned in Mm -hmm. your gut as a parent is just not the right thing for you. And this is where we get into the binary too. As human beings, we like things to be right or wrong. Turns out there's no one way to do this because all the children are different. And even all of the orchids are different. And the sticker chart, heaven help me, let's not talk about sticker charts today. Go down a rabbit hole there. (laughs) But that works for some kids. And it sends other kids into an absolute downward spiral. And if we, the parent, are like, this doesn't feel good, but so-and-so says it's the magic bullet, now we're out of congruence and we're signaling that to our child who's also dysregulated and falling apart and doesn't like this. And that's not good for anybody. So I totally agree with you about social media. There's so much good stuff to consume. And I think the trick is to see whether it's aligned with your internal compass and the things that you do know. And I think we give away so much of our parenting power to other people. We need to know information, but we also need to check it with ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I think your child's response to something is simply data, right? And not attaching your self-worth as a parent to that data or what that means and allowing it to go down this like catastrophization hole of, oh my gosh, what does this mean? No, it's just data. And I think we don't have time to go here today, but just to, and I don't know if this is also what you're thinking, because I wish I could read your mind, but I can't quite, but um, (laughs) yeah, with the sticker chart thing, I often find like kids that have the PDA profile, that pathological demand avoidance, that is one of the worst things that you can do. And even if your kid doesn't have that PDA profile. So for those listening, I know I have promised a million times We're going to do a mini series on this. So I think there will be some helpful strategies in this episode that will apply to these PDA kids. But if you're not familiar, it stands for pathological demand avoidance or the autistic community prefers persistent drive for autonomy. And it's when your kid's body goes into fight or flight mode in response to demands or perceived loss of autonomy. So I know that was a lot. I promise more episodes coming, but that's what I find is it literally can make things Worse, worse sometimes, not better. And coming back to that gut is so important. Uh, That's, that exactly. Gut That's exactly it. Anything that pits you against your child is probably not a great thing. And sometimes it's our own grief or resistance and that's real and that has to be dealt with. And we get to deal with that early and often when you yeah. have an orchid, right? Like I say this to parents all the time, like par- parents who are raising orchid kids, these are Autistic kids who are neurodivergent. I was going to say, let's define orchid kids. Yes, let's do that. Okay. So I define orchids as anybody who requires 
some extra as an orchid flower does. An orchid flower needs two ice cubes, not three, needs to be on the left side of the window, not the right side. So it needs a particular set of circumstances in which oh. to really become a very hardy, beautiful flower. In the same way, there are some kids, many kids in my experience, who need a certain atmosphere, a certain environment in which to really thrive and become fully themselves, where they're not fretful, shy, oppositional, in trouble all the time. No person wants to be bad. Right. We all start off, Dr. Becky has great inside. We're all good inside. And then stuff gets layered on top as protection. So that's who we're talking about. Yes, autistic kids with ADHD, any kind of developmental kind of condition or genetic syndrome that would make somebody be diverging off of the path of what we expect. I have a podcast called the Complicated Kids Podcast. Why? Because child development looks easy until something's going wrong. And then you're like, oh my God, this is so hard. This is so complicated. <laughs> Those are our orchids. Uh, you get to deal with the fact that this is an autonomous being early and often. Most people have to wait until their adult child marries somebody they hate or takes a job they disapprove of or drops out of college or doesn't go to college or has some kind of life event that diverges from the expectation. Yeah. If you have an orchid kid, you get to practice that really early, which if you let it can really shape you and be a growth experience. Yeah. Awful oh. sometimes, but yeah, but. I also think it's important to remember that the heart and the beauty can coexist. And I think an orchid, I actually have never asked you, so I didn't know this background of where this came from. I am not someone who grows plants and flowers. It's just not my forte. So I actually didn't even know this about orchids, but it makes a lot of sense, right? Is like with the right conditions, an orchid can truly thrive. But similarly, I remember I went to this conference once and the whole theme was wildflowers. And it was talking about why you need all these different types of flowers and how sad it would be if every flower said, I want to be a rose, right? How boring that would be. To layer this on, my brain also went to an orchid requires the right conditions to grow and there's so much beauty in it. And one of the focuses too is not trying to make that orchid like every other flower, right? So not trying to make your neurodivergent child like a neurotypical child. How can you match where they're at and what they need? That's exactly it. And particularly when kids are young, so I deal a lot with toddlers, they're not, they're barely in control of their own bodies. So we, as the adults with the fully cooked brains in the group, have to, we get to modify the environment and we get to modify our own behavior in service of their developing system, right? So we get to create that environment yeah. because they can't be expected to do it by themselves at that point. Right. Um, Literally their prefrontal cortex isn't developed. And that's where we get all these advanced cognitive skills. We get our emotion regulation skills and our brain is able to take in way more information. And we have that skill set. And this is why the importance of co-regulation becomes such a central focus, which I have a feeling we're going there, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, we so should, because I think this is when the rubber hits the road, right? Toddlers generally, let's just talk about all toddlers, all anybody under the, now we can get into anybody under the age of 26, right? Yeah, right. So, and on down, but let's say your typical three or two-year-old 
not in control of their emotions, not caring at all that there are other people in the world, they developmentally, it is completely expected that they think they're the center of the universe and that everybody and everything should bend to their will. That's normal. Now, if you get a kiddo who has an autism diagnosis or who, who is experiencing some developmental challenges, now you've got on top of just my brain doesn't, isn't done yet, you've got frustration you've got maybe even a shorter fuse. And so you're layering on kind of barriers to self-control that are just built into the system. That's just how it is. And now we've got potential for not just what's developmentally appropriate as a tantrum, which is I didn't get what I wanted and I cried for a minute and then I got over myself, but we're going into a meltdown, which is lasting longer than that, is more intense than that and occurs more frequently than that. Do you have a good definition for meltdown that you like to use? That's a great question, how I describe it. I think I often think of it as like a nervous system overload where it's more than just I want something, I'm trying to express myself. The body is literally often going into fight or flight in a mode. And this is also why we see that traditional approaches to regulate aren't being as effective. And this is one of the reasons too, we were talking earlier about all these neurotypical approaches. They might work great in neurotypical kids, but sometimes because of this difference, hit or miss even, but I think at the same time, like when the nervous system is in such a fight or flight, I think that it's not going to work. Like simply ignoring a behavior is not going to help to regulate that child and shift that trajectory. Yeah. The way I sometimes explain it to parents is very much like that also, which is we all have a bandwidth for feeling good in our own skin. And orchid kids, again, all of these people that we're talking about, they arrive in their bodies and they generally don't feel good in their skin. Like they're only ever passing through a state of homeostasis, which is, and I I describe it as like, you've had a good night's sleep, you've had your cup of coffee, you went to the bathroom, you had a good breakfast, and now you're ready for your day. That's the feeling that we expect to have. That's like baseline. But some kids have never experienced that feeling. And so now we're wondering why they're like, crashing on the floor of Target, guess what? They have never known what it feels like to be like, okay, cool, whatever, right? They're like never there. And so sometimes it looks like kids are going from zero to 90 in no time flat, but really they're going from 89 to 90. Yeah. Because they've got such a hair trigger on their nervous systems. And again, they're never starting from like a good spot. They're always starting from I'm slightly agitated kind of all the time. I often use an analogy of like it's having a big jug in your body. And throughout the day, all the stimuli is filling in. All these like external factors are coming into play. And the reality is it's not that just autistic children have this jug. 
it's a human being factor. And as adults, our jugs are bigger. We have more capacity. But then when we add a neurodivergence, and I find this in particular to be true about PDA, is a lot of times that jug is smaller. It fills much more quickly. And then similarly about this idea of homeostasis, I think of this idea of a lot of times we aren't ever draining that jug fully where it's empty and you're starting with an empty jug for the day or your child is starting with an empty jug for the day. And so that's where it can feel like it turns quickly. But there are things that are adding up that are accumulating throughout the day. And one of the approaches that actually I got some advanced training in was a mentor of mine wrote a mindfulness program for autistic children and bringing in a lot. She specializes in emotion regulation on the research side. And I got the opportunity to train with her. And we really were using all these mindfulness-based approaches to try to help drain the jug. But we also were helping parents to really understand some of these early warning cues. And that is the thing that I find, I don't know if you do, but there is never, it never comes out of nowhere. There's always some indicators. It can feel like it comes out of nowhere, particularly if you don't know how to read your child's communication, then it's like, where did that come from? But they've been communicating all along everything that is going on, how their body's feeling. It just doesn't hit our neurotypical standards of a child saying, I'm really overwhelmed right now. Right. Totally. Yeah. No, if I think about even just, and I'm, because I've been doing this work so long and I'm wired this way, I'm, I'm super sensitive to these things. And so I can point them out to parents. So even something small as finger posture, sometimes mm-hmm. toe walking, like stiffness or laxness of extremities, like the body. Um, and then we can get into things like jumping, hopping, spinning, um, rocking, crashing, right? There are some other behaviors that will indicate that, yeah, the nervous system is like, ooh, something's brewing here. And you might miss it because you might just think that, and particularly if you've got a kid who's just wired that way to begin with, that, yeah, kids are whirling dervishes. And they are, but there's like a qualitative difference there that once you have your your orchid lens on, you you see it much more clearly. And to your point, then you can start to drain the jug when you need to by giving that deep proprioception or that time in the away corner that's nice and dark and filtering filtering out some of the stimuli. Yeah. You said something earlier about brains taking in a lot of sensory information. You said it in a different context, but one of the things that autistic people often report is that they are constantly taking in like all of the sensory information. I was talking to a colleague of mine who said in college, she could tell if her roommate had borrowed a book, even if the book was back on the shelf, (laughs) because she was sensitive to that level of, of displacement of change. So we know that autistic brains are not filtering sensory stimuli in the same way as we might expect. And so that's another factor too, right? Your two-year-old doesn't know that they're not supposed to be listening to the fridge or like listening to the overhead lights. Their brain is just doing that by itself. And it's not, our brains do a thing, right? Where they attenuate, they lessen the impact of those sounds. There's Right now, there's construction going on outside, so there's a truck beeping, which fortunately Zoom is filtering out, but I have to work to filter that, but I'm able to do that. 
Right. And I can sit here and have a conversation with you. Many neurodivergent brains cannot do that. They literally can't. It's not a won't. It's a can't. Right. Yeah. And it feels in its experience at a much more intense level. I laughed at the fridge part. I don't know if you've ever watched it, but young Sheldon. And there's an episode where he was like, do you hear that noise? And all his family was like, no. And then his dad was like, he figured out it was the fridge. And then his dad was like, just ignore it. And Sheldon couldn't. Sheldon ended up taking the entire fridge apart because he needed to fix it. And I think that's, that is such an important piece of this puzzle that adds to creating the meltdown is it is much more intense. It would be like us living, if you are neurotypical, living in a a situation where there's blasting music and flashing lights all the time and then it's get work done. Like that very well could be what your autistic child is experiencing on a day-to-day basis. And so, yeah, these, and then these stimming behaviors come in to try to regulate. Yes, absolutely. Downregulate the body, which is why we don't correct them in any way, unless there's safety issues, of course, but otherwise let your child self-regulate in this way. Totally. Absolutely. We all do it, by the way. I've been known to bite my nails. I've been known to tap a pencil, chew on a piece of gum. We all have those, right? Yeah. And then the question becomes, are they safe? Can we do them without disrupting others? Can we shape them into something that's going to give us what we need while also being less distracting to others and also more of the generally acceptable? So you had asked before we like hit record, okay, so what about language and meltdowns? So we know that like a meltdown, and you started to describe it too, is it literally is like the brain just is going, nope, there's a threat has been detected. We either go into fight, flight, freeze, or fawn, and nothing is being stored. Nothing is being remembered or learned. And this is, I think this is the first place where we fall down as parents, because we're like, we want to teach kids not to have meltdowns, or we want to teach them how to come out of a meltdown. And the brain is not available for learning during a meltdown. Oh, no. This is like pure lockdown survival. And there's some really interesting research, and I don't have the study, but I have heard that speech frequencies. So our voices fall into a range of frequencies. Speech frequencies are attenuated during a meltdown, meaning your child's brain literally cannot even hear you as well as when they are calm or regulated. So there's that piece of it. So one of the things I always tell parents is if your child, if you've gotten to the point where there is a meltdown happening and we can do things on the front end to, to divert it and we can look for antecedents and we can do all of that. If we've gotten to the meltdown stage, stop talking. Yes. It's not working. It's not yeah. good for anybody. And if you must talk, then stay on message with something that's very matter of fact and very factual and calm. Mm-hmm. So- I once had a client, an autistic client who was four and who was having a lot of trouble getting dressed in the morning. And they had this like weekend, weekday routine. So weekends, he didn't have to get dressed. And then Monday morning would roll around. It would be a disaster. So first thing, okay, we got dressed every day of the week. And then we didn't have a problem anymore. But this particular day, he was like not wanting to put on his shirt. And I basically coached mom. I was like, we're going to do a first then, but we're not going to enforce stuff. We're just going to be like, first your shirt and then outside. And that's all she said for 45 minutes. First your shirt 
and the gun outside. Low and slow while he was having his experience and he was safe and he wanted to go outside. And he, it was like, no, it's not possible right now to go outside without a shirt. Reduce or eliminate talking during meltdowns. It's not helpful. Don't negotiate. Don't try to teach. None of that is working. Then the other part is, from their perspective, the other thing that happens in a meltdown is you don't have access to your own language. So like, why can't they just use their words? Guess what? Their words are not online right now. <laughs> not available. And so even that, which seems innocuous, like I just want them to use their words, use their words instead of pushing and kicking and screaming. It's, it's not feasible. It's not neurologically possible in that moment. Yeah. I once heard something that I absolutely loved talking about communication and that your child is going to access the easiest form of communication mm -hmm. for them and what they have access to in that moment. And spoken language is the easiest form of communication, but there's a lot of times that kids don't have access to that. And so then they are actually choosing potentially harder forms of communication but they are still communicating. And so I, when I heard that, I was like, I love that. And it actually came up in context in, it was episode 77. I had Katia Piscatelli on. She's Boho's Fichi to talk about Gestalt language processing. And we were talking about it with AAC, right? Mm -hmm. Like that fear of my child will never speak if they're using AAC. Spoken language is much easier. But I also love applying it to this. And I do a lot where it's like, your child just doesn't have access to spoken communication, but we have to pay attention to what the other modes of communication are. And this meltdown is a form of communication. It's a very clear form of communication. If we think about it from a behavioral standpoint, I think about this a lot. The solution is not to ignore it, but by attending to it, we naturally attend to meltdowns. We are reinforcing that. And we're saying, listen, I hear you. This is effective. I, I'm with you now. And so also that does reinforce the pattern where the miscommunication piece comes in, I think on the parenting side is, well, we just remove attention from it and it will go away. No, it's not that simple. But we are saying to kids, this is a valid form of communication when we're attending to it. And it is a valid form of communication because none of their other communicative bids have worked. Any thoughts on that? Real quick, just a brief interruption because I want you to know you don't have to navigate this journey alone. If you're in a place where you have concerns about your child's development, you've been on the search for a therapist that provides evidence-informed neurodivergent affirming care, or you're needing more support as a parent, the whole family approach may be a good fit for you. Autism doesn't just impact your child's life, so you deserve care that works for your child and your whole family. Head to the link in the show notes to schedule a complimentary call where we can chat about your unique circumstances. We can help you decide if Dr. Tay concierge clinical care would be a good fit for your family. And if not, we will provide you resources for your next best steps. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. Yes, I, I think you're right. And the slippery slope arguments gets pulled out immediately. And I think what we tell parents in our Raising Orchid Kids class is we talk a lot about behavior in that class. And what we spend six weeks talking about antecedents and how behavior is communication. And we spend half of one week talking about the consequences, right? So we got ABCs, MC, and behavior consequence, but things are always being chained together. And we 
as again, the neuro, the people who are in possession of a fully cooked brain in the group, we get distracted by what we think is going on or what we think we're going to be reinforcing when really, when we've reached meltdown, the thing we want to be reinforcing is I am here for you and nothing that you can do is going to scare me away. Yes. That's where we end up. The rest gets thrown out the window when we get into a, a meltdown. And the thing that, the thing that can happen if we create these scenarios where we're like trying to ignore meltdowns and they're escalating and escalating because guess what? I'm terrified out here. I'm flailing around in space. I don't know what's happening and you're not helping me. You, this must be really awful because I'm by myself, right? That's what your kid is thinking. Then we create burnout. Right. And we create burnout in young children. We're not talking about, oh, I hate my job and I'm 45. No, we're like talking about six-year-olds who have school refusal and won't get out of bed. And so that's where it, it feels really tricky sometimes to, okay, meltdown is happening. The only thing I'm doing is I'm being physically present and I'm co-regulating, meaning I am keeping myself calm so that you can borrow that from me when you decide that you're ready. I think sometimes people, parents feel like co-regulation is not working. Right. <laughs> right. No, no. It's working because you're using it, not because the other person is calming down. And it's a time thing, right? And dropping expectations that it's got to look a certain way, that your kid has to respond in a certain way as well. It simply is being present. And I think one of the pieces that I find is the hardest is parents. And understandably, when someone is really stressed out, we don't realize that there, there's like mirroring where our nervous systems start to get activated. Yep. And I think it, sometimes I find that parents have a hard time recognizing that then their nervous system is getting activated, which then mirrors back to the child as well. And so one of the things that I think is so important is regulating your own nervous system in this. And I, I honestly, I think one of the most underrated tools is deep breathing and not deep breathing of telling your child to deep breathe. That's that does not work, right? But rather you deep breathing. And there's actually some science that doing it really audibly where you're like breathing in and then exhaling and letting them hear it actually allows your child's body to naturally begin to regulate without any cognitive, like intentional processes. And so I think this is also important. One thing, and then I'll let you go real quick. I dove into this just for parents that are listening episode they're really old episodes, actually. Episode two, three, and 10. So two and three, two is about parent regulation. Three is about child regulation. And episode 10 is about ABCs, if you want to learn a little bit more about that. Okay, go. <laughs> I want to hear. No, I just think it's so funny because you're going to have parents who are listening to this. I tried that. I tried the deep breathing. They hate it. No. The reason they hate it is because you told them to do it. Exactly. <laughs> or you ask them. So this is the other piece of it, right? There's, it, and it seems contradictory. When kids are in meltdown, they are needing to do that work themselves. It is their job to wade through, swim through, whatever, struggle through that state. And the way that we can support them is by being physically, emotionally, whatever, present, but we can't do that work for them. Right. So I think that's where it gets confusing is this is so hard to watch my kids struggle and yet that's what they need to do right now. 
Yeah. Then after, now we look at the data and we say, okay, what triggered this? How can we avoid this the next time? Are there things we want to change about the routine? I'm a big proponent of a real solid routine for orchid kids every day of the week, even Sundays, unless it feels really good to your orchid to have a day of the week when there aren't any routines. Like again, like some, so much of this is checking your own gut about actually this works. Like you're telling me to do routines, but not having a routine works. Fantastic. Do right. That. But just, yeah, this, it cannot be overstated. The need to keep your own self calm, like keeping your own side of the street clean is your first job as a parent of anybody. And especially as the parent of an orchid who has that hair trigger on their lid flipping, Dan Siegel has that hand brain model that I love. And so where the fingers are, the this is an audio thing, but <laughs> the fingers are over top of the thumb with across the palm. And so then you can flip your lid really easily and everybody's lids can get flipped. Think about being in, the, in a subway car with somebody who's clearly very agitated. Like everybody starts to feel agitated. The same thing is happening even more so between parents and kids. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Because we're so attuned to each other. Yeah. The mantra that just came to mind as you were talking, and I've actually never shared this before, but your role as a parent, because it can be so hard. Again, your nervous system's getting activated to think clearly, but a mantra is, I am a safe body. That is your role. I am a safe body for my kid, right? And I think that is what your role is. And I think if we can remember that, it becomes so much easier to do the tips we're talking about, right? Slow down, reduce our speech, be present, stay present, just be there, maybe incorporating some deep breathing and also recognizing there's nothing in that moment. It feels, it can feel hopeless, but this can help you feel hopeful. Nothing in that moment though that you can do to help your kid work through this besides being there. And if you are a person who has experienced trauma Mm. and you're a parent, that's not going to feel true that you're a safe body. And that's a signal. If you say that to yourself, this is a tip that I use for the parents that I coach, because things have to feel true. In order to be a mantra that works, it has to feel true, right? Oh, absolutely. So if you test that and you're like, nope, I am not a safe body, we've got some work to do. There's some stickiness there. You go in there, you get the gunk out with a coach, with a therapist for yourself so that then you can show up while your child is completely off the rails and you're not going off the rails and you can be that safe body. I love that mantra. Oh my God. Like I'm full body chills just even <laughs> thinking about it. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> And thank you for adding that caveat because that's such an important caveat to this. So incredibly important. Yeah. Okay. A question that keeps floating in my mind as we're talking, I'm curious about. So circling back to this idea of tantrums versus meltdowns. Mm -hmm. So it, it feels weird asking it, but I think it's an important question to ask. Can orchid kids, neurodivergent kids, autistic kids, do they have tantrums? I don't think so. Interesting. Okay. Okay, but <laughs> it gets tricky. It does. Because I, so if we're talking about toddlers, the answer is, I don't think so. Okay. And I'm not even really sure that anybody has tantrums. If you've got a smart cookie to start with. Yeah. Okay. If you've got a smart cookie, 
you might get some behavior. So a tantrum to me, if we're talking about these guys, is I'm pretending to cry, <laughs> right? It's not real crying. If we've got real crying, we've got some level of dysregulation. Everything is on a spectrum here. Maybe tantrum is on a spectrum with meltdown. So that's what I say. And I'm going to, I don't know if I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth right now or not, take it or leave it. But if, no, I'm going to stand by my original answer. Okay. I don't think that most kids have actual, what we would consider tantrums, meaning I'm doing this for effect on purpose. Yes, I do agree. It takes some attentionality. I don't know if I would have answered that the same way, which is so interesting. And I think this is such an important point, though, is one, I think, to presume that your child needs support in this moment and that it's not this intentional. Even sometimes the word manipulation can get thrown around. That feels a little severe coming out of my mouth. But this intentional kind of working the system, I think we want to assume that is not the case, that your child needs support. But I do think I would have said yes, it very, very quickly can flip from a tantrum to a meltdown. And that's the difference is a lot of neurotypical kids where tantrums are age appropriate might have a little like fit, so to speak, and then can regulate themselves and move on. I think that flip can get switched very quickly. And I think that's what's making it muddy as we're talking about it. It's interesting to think about. And I have two mostly neurotypical children. The kids I see all the time as you are neurodivergent. So I'm only dealing with people who've got, yeah, really short fuses and their switches get flipped really easily. I like to use the word strategic instead of manipulative. Yes. Thank you. I could not think of the word. Yeah. Yeah. I don't love the word manipulative. I think because it has such a negative connotation. Too much intent. Yes. As if I intend to make you crazy and mad for the purpose of getting myself regulated. No. But I might be using a strategy that's available to me in the moment that I think is going to bring me closer to homeostasis, right? Yeah. That's real, but that's a bottom-up process. And manipulation involves a top-down process where like we're thinking about what the goal and then we're making a plan to get the goal. There's no planning involved here. This is, I have an impulse. I give in to the impulse and now I'm like, woo, over the edge. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I know we connected over this book, Dr. Ross Green, it's called The Explosive Child. Sometimes I don't love the name of it, but he talks about kids want to do their best. They will do their best. And that is a really important thing to keep in mind that sometimes they don't have access to be able to do this. And I think when we say manipulative, I think it takes us out of that that believing that they want to be connected, that they want to be regulated. And so I think that is an important model to think about, which is another reason I don't love the word manipulative. Kids do well when they can. And if they can't, there's a really good reason. I think there is this, I'm I'm very curious about this term. It's childism. Mm. Have you heard this term before? No. That that our culture is very childist in, in as much as We think that children are somehow subhuman, like that they're not real people with opinions and ideas and nervous systems and reactions that are valid. And so when we assume that someone is trying to manipulate us, particularly a child, we assume that that they're lower than us. And Mm. it's a weird kind of superiority complex that adults often have with kids. And by the way, they can feel it, the kids. Yeah. Like- 
You want to talk about BS detectors? Find me a nonverbal orchid kid. Oh, yeah. Those kids know what's up. And I think some of it is they're, again, the the sensory input, they're like a super detector of what's going on. And there can be so much intuitive awareness of what's going on. They just might not have the communicative, the speaking capacity to be able to articulate that. But this is also, we could go down a whole nother rabbit hole of presuming competence and all of that. Correct. And by the way, we can also talk about the pyramid of communication on which speech is like the cherry on the top of a ginormous banana split, right? (laughs) Yeah. 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 Because so many parents are like, I just want my kid to speak. And it's, we need to be, when we're talking about like from a behavioral mindset, like reinforcing all this other communication. So kids feel like they are being seen and heard or otherwise they're not going to creep up that pyramid. That's often how I describe it. Yeah. And right. Where are they at? What are they communicating? How do we layer on top of that? How do we extend? How do we bring in? How do we connect? One of the things I'd love to do in my practice is something I call screenless coaching, where it's a virtual format. I've got eyes on their room, but I'm talking to the parents through a headset and the kid never knows I'm there. And the reason I love to do that is because I can set the mood of the room and get parent and child really well attuned to each other. And there's like a physical transformation that happens, a physical reality of being deeply attuned to another person that often parents of orchid kids haven't felt much of. And anybody who has had a baby knows that that kind of like that open feeling that you have when you gaze at your infant But lots of orchid parents have had kids that were very fussy, colicky, fretful, didn't sleep, and they haven't had many of these physical positive experiences. And so we bring that in and it's, it is like really about detection. Okay, what's going on here? What is happening for them? How can you fit yourself in, pull up alongside them and, and engage in a really playful, fun way? And I don't know if you're feeling this in your nervous system right now. My whole nervous system is, oh, man, that feels so good. <laughs> but that's what happens. Yeah. Right? It's the opposite of a meltdown, what we get to when we are attuned with our kids. Do and we have a word for that? Attunement. Attunement. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I learned it from a social worker friend of mine. Yes. My thought right now is that feels very technical versus meltdown doesn't feel technical. So I want the like comparable version of a non-technical term that feels soft and squishy. Connected. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Well, we could go all into the universe and stuff, but yeah, totally. <laughs> That's another yes. conversation too. <laughs> Absolutely. So couple things before we wrap this up. Anything on this topic that like you've been thinking through and it's like burning in your mind and you didn't get a chance to share or like parting words for parents right now? I just think like keeping yourself calm is the primary goal of surviving any meltdown. And if you can't keep yourself calm consistently, everyone's going to lose it sometimes. But if you're consistently losing it, figure out why. It's totally worth doing, even though it will be uncomfortable. Yeah. I was going to say therapy for me has been one of the most transformational things of being able to like really understand emotions and how I process them and sitting with them. And it's a beautiful experience. And I've talked very candidly on this podcast about that. Coaching has done that for me. Yeah. When I first started processing negative emotions, literally my brain would tell me I was going to die if I felt that feeling. 
And I think so, like our brain sends us signals that there's a big emergency if we feel uncomfortable or lost or sad or grief or stressed, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, this is a problem. You got to solve this. The issue becomes if we're trying to solve our feelings through our child's behavior, that's a recipe for just yuckiness. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So true. Okay. Where can people, if they want to keep learning from you, connect with you, tell us a little bit and make sure you tell us about Orchid Kids too, in case parents are interested in learning more. Yes. So raisingorchidkids.com is where you can find all things orchid raisers. We have a checklist on there. If you're wondering, like, am I raising an orchid kid? We have a nice little checklist you can fill okay. out. And we run classes several times a year. It's an eight week class. You get mixed in with a cohort. We have a high touch, small group situation happening. And it's a really lovely place to land, particularly if you don't know anybody else who's raising an orchid and you've been hesitant about speaking your truth in public to your neighbors or your siblings or whoever, your friends, it's a really good spot. Yeah. So raising orchid kids. If people are in the DC, Maryland and Virginia area, speechkids.com is my speech therapy practice. And we are a neuroaffirming, holistic speech therapy practice. Yeah. And I think they got insight into that today just by this conversation for sure. Absolutely. Anywhere else that you like hang out, like social media wise or email wise or? Yes. If you go to the website, you'll get on my email list. Okay. I also have a Complicated Kids podcast, which right. people, thank you for saying that one up because I always forget to say it, where we talk about all things Complicated Kids. You've been on there. Yeah. Um, it was so fun. It's so fun. It's really like conversations with good people. And yeah, YouTube. You can find me on YouTube. Great. We'll put all of these links in the show notes. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for this conversation. I had a lot of fun today and I, I feel that back and forth. And so I, I know parents are going to find value out of this podcast. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure. Absolutely. All right, y'all. That is a wrap for today's episode of Evolve with Dr. Tay. I will see you back here next time. Before we wrap up this episode, for real this time, I want to share a couple ways you can get even more value and what your next steps could be. First, join the Evolve Facebook group. We do Q&As about the episodes and so much more. I linked that group, my personal social media pages, and any resources I mentioned in this episode in the show notes. So scroll down now and join me online. When you submit questions on any of my pages, your question could be featured on this podcast. How cool is that? I love being able to speak on topics that feel directly relevant to your life. Your questions truly make a difference in the content we create here. One last thing, do your fellow autism parents a favor. Share this episode on your social media and tag me. Autism currently affects one in 36 families in the United States and many more worldwide. So I'm sure there is a parent in your social media followers that could be served by this podcast. Thank you again for being here, and I'm so grateful we shared this time together. Bye, y'all.